As you're seated, we turn our attention to James chapter 3 and verse 17 as we are turning the corner to the completion of this series on biblical wisdom. It's been over a month since we've been in this uh, together with in the Lord's providence matters intervening. So we come now to James chapter 17, you'll re- or chapter 3, verse 17. You'll remember that he has contrasted biblical, heavenly, divinely sent wisdom with wisdom, verse 15, that is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And now we again return to verse 17, where James says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. It is that second to last description that our attention goes to this evening, where it says, The wisdom that is from above is without partiality. Now, it is when we understand this that we again see how desperately we need grace, if ever, to be wise. There are certainly means by which we may grow in the material, if you will, and discerning different patterns and things that ought to be done. We can become quite full of the material of knowledge and know what is right and know what is wrong. But it is when we enter upon this passage that we see far more than book learning, even, and we say it carefully, Bible learning, far more than that is required if ever to be wise. What do we mean? That the Bible is insufficient or unnecessary? Absolutely not. But what we mean is, if we are to be wise truly, we must be not only filled with the understanding of Scripture, but with an allegiance to Scripture, faithfulness to Scripture, love to Scripture, love to God, dedication to His cause. And you can understand, of course, that men, women, and even children can have their minds pumped full of biblical material. And so children can, and what a great uh, gift it is that children can do this, they can memorize things very quickly. And we ought to prioritize that when children are young, causing them to memorize the best things. And of course, the best things are God's things, even His Word. And yet, the mere memorizing of those things without God's grace transforming our hearts and causing us both to believe those things and then love those things and hold fast to those things makes indeed the person who knows them to become guilty of an even greater judgment. And so, as with children, so with men and women. We can read excellent treatments of wisdom and knowledge and skill and understanding. We can dive into what's known as casuistry, looking at particular cases and circumstances of that and trying to see, well, how have others navigated those very difficult cases of conscience? And we become skilled in understanding those things. But you'll notice the text before us, and particularly this word that is translated with two in our English, without partiality, is actually showing us something that requires God's grace. So this word that is translated here without partiality has to do without um, judging. It has to do with without doubting, without discerning, without discriminating. It's a word that has a prefix that then negates the rest. So you think of our English, something is possible. Well, that means it has the ability to be done. As soon as you put the prefix M in front of it, it makes it impossible. It cannot be done. Well, that's the same in the word before us. It's not possible, that is the root word, but a root word meaning to make a distinction, to discriminate, uh, to lean one way over another way. And notice what wisdom is, is without that. It doesn't have that. True biblical wisdom is not, as it were, falsely discriminating uh, uh, against various cases. Now, it is rightly discriminating in the sense of discriminating truth from error, but it is not discriminating. 
discriminating on a surface level. Here's a rich man, here's a poor man, I'm going to favor the rich. That's what wisdom doesn't do. Here's a family member, here's an enemy, I'm going to favor the family member in this case of law. That's what wisdom doesn't do. Because wisdom is with full allegiance to the cause of God. It is, if we were to put this uh, word in, as it were, a, a positive statement, what it is, it is even-handed. It is equal. It is equitable in its judgments. You can see the verb from which the root before us uh, derives in James chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Right? That's the verb, with respect. That is, favoring, leaning, wavering this way, uh, determining, well, this is a person whom I prioritize, therefore I'm going to choose their case above and beyond the other's case. And so you see how that goes on. If there come a man with a gold ring, go the apparel, and so on, and you have respect, verse 3, to him. Notice what it says in verse 4, Are ye not then partial in yourselves? And wisdom, James says, is without partiality. And so you can think of this in those frequent uh, portrayals of Lady Justice. She's blinded. She's blindfolded. And she's holding a scale out with her hand. Now, we can, with a negative way, say today Justice is blind. It's not seeing rightly. But the ancient idea of Lady Justice being blindfolded is she is not, as it were, interested in who stands before her. It's simply going to be told by the weight of the scale. Is it true or is it false? It doesn't matter who's before us. Now, whatever the ancient pagans were right about or wrong about, we can say that such is the case with biblical wisdom. It doesn't ask the question first, well, who is it that's involved? It asks the question, what does God say on the matter? And so, wisdom is without partiality. It's without this preferential treatment of others or of causes and so on. We saw that, of course, when we read earlier in Exodus chapter 23. And so, you can see in our context how necessary this is today because there are movements that get a lot of energy and the justification is, well, it's favoring the poor, It's favoring this people group, that people group. It's pro-union. It's anti-union. It's pro-Republican. It's anti-Republican. All of these things get going. It's pro-American. It's pro-European. It's pro-whatever. But you see, for the biblically wise person, none of those things weigh in the equation. Because the ultimate question for the one who is biblically wise is, what says the Lord. The Lord is the one who is to guide and govern our call. Righteousness is to prevail. Wisdom is not blinded by bribes. It's not blinded by preferences. It's not blinded by benefits. It judges and behaves. It counsels and carries on in faithfulness. And faithfulness to God according to His revealed Word, His truth. This is, as you doubtlessly can see, of tremendous importance for our day. And so you can think of the way politics have devolved. And let's just be clear about it. That's where we are historically. And so the big push becomes, why should you vote for this person? Well, because that person is bad. It doesn't ask the question of what does this person stand for. It doesn't ask questions about does this person love the truth? Does this person honor God? Will he be one who will serve the Lord? It just is against someone else. This is a tremendous failure in our present day. It's also something that even the world recognizes, of course. There are laws against bribery. There are laws against favoring family for positions of authority and other such things. You can see this throughout the Bible. It's an emphasis, in fact, that 
once you start to look for it, it leaps off the page. Just to give you several examples, Exodus 23, verse 8, you've seen this already. Take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Think of that. It corrupts, it twists the words of the righteous. And so we speak of someone being paid off or bought off or being given hush money. Right? And scandals erupt at the discovery of those things. And God from the outset saying, don't take those kinds of gifts. Don't receive them. Deuteronomy 6.19, thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons. Do you understand? It's precisely what James is saying, but particularly, particularly addressing persons. Don't just say, well, this is someone who has great influence, so I'm going to cater to them. That then rests judgment. Think of Samuel's sons. First Samuel 8 and verse 3, it speaks of his sons who walked not in his ways, but turned aside after filthy lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. So they didn't walk in the way of their father, who largely was walking in ways of faithfulness, though he had his own issues. But instead, they loved money and riches that were corrupted. They took bribes and perverted judgment. You can see this, of course, in various kings and queens of Israel, Jezebel and Ahab. There are fools that are appointed to a mock kind of trial and uh, wickedness prevails. Proverbs 17, verse 23 reads, A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. And Isaiah 5, and verse 23 speaks of the wicked who justify the wicked for reward. Again and again, the Scriptures are warning us against such partiality that comes whether it is by favoritism, whether it is by bribe or other such things. And so elders in the church are to be qualified, among other things, by not given, being given to filthy lucre. It's an interesting expression. The very things that Samuel's sons were guilty of, elders in the church are not to be prone to desiring riches because then they risk not shepherding well and even-handedly and faithfully the church of God. Moreover, they are to be just or righteous, rightly handling, and indeed, as Paul says, rightly dividing the word of truth. So as we visit this part of the passage and this characteristic of biblical wisdom, that it's without partiality, what we see is wisdom functions with integrity and faithfulness. But we have to be clear. Integrity means to be integrated with something. Faithfulness means to be faithful to something. And so we speak of a faithful spouse. What does that mean? It means the husband is faithful to his wife and the wife is faithful to her husband. They keep themselves pure, whole, and entire, one for the other, and so on. When we speak about wisdom functioning this way, what is it integrated with? What is it dealing with integrity in? What is it faithful to? Well, it is faithful to the Lord and His Word and the cause of righteousness. All of these things that you see in this passage. In other words, wisdom is not, as it were, abstracted, but rather it is united to the Lord and His revealed will. Wisdom is allegiant and faithful to God as God has revealed Himself in His Word. Well, let's visit this a little bit more. Firstly, by looking at the temptations that are against faithfulness in biblical wisdom. And secondly, looking at the standards for faithfulness and wisdom. Firstly, then the temptations that are against faithfulness. What are the common things that we find in the Scripture and in our own experience that would tempt us to be partial? To be, as it were, uh, prejudiced. We think of that word, and often in our day, that simply has a racial idea. They're prejudiced against this uh, type of person or that type of person. But we have to remember the word itself means to be having a decision beforehand. It's beforehand the judgment is made. Instead of hearing the case, weighing the matter on its own merit, and then reaching a verdict, 
to be prejudiced is to be one who has reached a verdict before actually entertaining what's going on. So what is the temptation to be prejudiced instead of being faithful in the execution of biblical wisdom? Well, one is, one temptation is to judge according to real or perceived benefits. To judge or to counsel or to uh, serve in such a way as would tend to bring ourselves benefits. This is what's behind the frequent forbidding of bribery. Don't take a gift. Don't be bought off. Don't do these things. Why? Because it perverts judgment. It twists the cause of righteousness. Um, There's been a tension, of course, in our own congregation in the Lord's providence through things with Mexico, Nuevo Laredo in particular, and we've talked about on occasion the corruption that has infiltrated um, the highest offices of the land, and this is a big issue. And so you have the cartels, which buy off police officers, which buy off governors, which buy off mayors, which buy off border patrol agents, all of these things. What are they doing? Well, they're giving a benefit to someone in order for the other to look the other way. And so there are constant reports of this, you know, we're going to be shipping through, you know, something, perhaps not going to say, so when you see this truck, this color coordination, or this license plate, just wave it on through, right? Now, there's a benefit that's being received. I'm going to look the other way because I'm getting money out of this. I'm getting rich off of this. And then judges are paid off. And our own nation has many instances of this and scandalous discoveries of payouts and uh, various ways that briberies have gone forth. But behind all that, why does someone do that? Why is it that they're unwilling to stand for the truth to rule what is right, to function with integrity. It's because they are functioning with integrity, but their integrity is to themselves. It's to their personal gain. They have prioritized themselves over and above truth. They prioritize themselves over justice, over righteousness. They've prioritized themselves over God. Think for a moment, that if one receives a bribe in order to corrupt a judgment or to participate or permit wickedness, they have chosen, think of this for a moment, a temporal benefit over and above the eternal glory of God. They've looked at God and said, you're not worth what I'm getting by virtue of payment. Getting 20 bucks, 2,000 bucks, $20,000, $200,000, doesn't matter, keep ramping it up. But you can see what's going on is they have faithfulness, but their faithfulness is to themselves and their temporal pleasures, their vain and wanton lusts. And so they would rather cater to themselves than serve the cause of God. Now brethren, this isn't something that only certain ones struggle with. This is something that all of us can be tempted with. We ought to remember that so soon as we think, I would never do as much as that, that soon enough we find ourselves in a situation where the strength of such a temptation is real. It may not be with cash in hand. It may be rather with a friend, a family member, something of that sort. It's rather interesting that Samuel, of course, whose sons had turned from him, he had failed to restrain them. He had, it seems, said, well, they're my sons. I'm, I'm going to sort of let that go. I'll, I'll rebuke them with my words, but I won't bring to pass the other efforts of authority that I would have. So it could be toward children. It could be toward a dear friend. It could be toward someone else. It judges according to perceived benefits, whether financial, whether relational, whether just sort of getting through and not causing a ripple upon the face of the relational waters. So it can be direct, as in a bribe, something else. It can be indirect. You know, so 
A benefit that is by a bribe gives a direct benefit. Here's the money if you do this. But there can be indirect things, we think. And this is what James is talking about in James chapter 2. There's a man who comes in with a gold ring, the apparel, and so on. And you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, stand there. Or sit here under my footstool, you're partial, and so on. Well, what's motivating that? It doesn't seem something direct. It's not as if the rich man's coming in and saying, here's your money. But in the partial treatment of the rich, giving them the best, you're, as it were, greasing the the rail for uh, something to come to you later on down the line. And so it is an indirect seeking. If I'm kind and generous to these who have influence and ability perhaps to do something for me, well, it may not come directly, but I'll be on their good side and things might turn out as I would like. So, brethren, we have to be thinking through these things. Is my treatment of others based upon principles of wisdom, love, truth, and righteousness? Or embedded in it, is it because of some perceived benefit, real, imaginary, direct or indirect, that I might gain. Remember reading G.I. Williamson's little study on the Shorter Catechism, and he talks about you know, the need we have to do things in truth. And there's this little illustration of what's to be a young man and a young lady, and the young man is teaching the Bible, helping this young lady to understand the Bible. And his point, if I remember this correctly, is, is this what's being done right or wrong? And of course, if we saw someone teaching someone the Bible, we would hope it's right. But his point is, you don't know. Because he could be teaching the Bible in order to get in on the good side with this young lady whom he has an affection for or something of that sort, instead of a commitment to teaching the truth and leading that person in the truth. The point is, biblical wisdom not only needs to sort of look right on the outside, but it has to be something that's motivated by gracious truth or true and godly principles that we are going and caring about ourselves in faithfulness to God. That what we say, how we treat people, what we do, how we judge, what counsel we give, is not because oh, I know they want to hear this counsel, and if they hear what I say to them, they're then going to appreciate me more. Think of the false prophets. It's to be before all of the kings that were contrary to God. And you remember the scene, of course, before Micaiah comes, that there's one who says, listen, king, you're going to destroy all of your enemies. And the king of Judah comes and says, is there not a prophet of the Lord And the king of Israel says, well, there is one, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me. Here's the point. When you become allegiant and faithful to God's cause, there will come a time when you will be the unpopular one and you'll suffer reproach. That you'll be the one who is put aside and mistreated. It may not be as prominent as Micaiah was, of course, but it may be within your family. It may be with your children. It may be with your spouse. It may be with parents. It may be with cousins and aunts and uncles that you're striving in wisdom to do what God is calling you to do. And that's going in a course that others who are not committed to the same would oppose. And it's then, it's not money, is it? It's not wealth, is it? But the benefit of those relationships has a pressure upon you to compromise the cause of truth. So to judge according to benefits is one such temptation against faithfulness. Another temptation is to judge according to preferences. And so we've touched on this already, and it's certainly related to the other. But you can think of it, for instance, if we judge according to a preference for our friend who may be in the wrong. We judge according to the preference of a family member who may be in the wrong. And so you see this at times. It's so obvious to everyone who's not directly involved. A person says after their son, daughter, or spouse, or whoever is found quite clearly guilty of some heinous crime, 
and the mother, the father, whoever stands and before all the world says, I don't understand why they're mistreating my boy because he's a good boy. This is a problem, you know, they're not seeing it right and so on. The problem is actually not the fact that the world's not seeing it right. It's that the mother's looking through colored lenses. She's looking through this situation and she favors her child over and above principles of wisdom. You see this when, for instance, historically the death penalty has been executed. There's an appeal and it's very prominent in our day, which is why in large ways it's been corrupted and put aside. But then the cry comes out, why are you going to injure their children by putting the father to death? And so what's happening is there's a leveraging of this preference for some other thing than a preference for the cause of truth and righteousness. The fact is, justice isn't the problem. The fact is, the criminal is the problem, and the just execution of a punishment is what is demanded at that time. But if we start to judge according to personal preferences, or societal preferences, or cultural preferences, we will corrupt wisdom. We will corrupt judgment. And so what you start to see, brothers and sisters, is our culture is grossly off on issues of righteousness, wisdom, and judgment. There are all sorts of preferences, all sorts of causes that have taken a groundswell upon the hearts of men and leads them into the perversion of preferences over faithfulness to God's Word. It enters the church. You can see it in one way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul's addressing the carnality even among those in the church when he says in verse 3, Are ye not carnal? For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, by now you should hear those words and say, if that's there, there's not biblical wisdom at work. Right? James has used those words quite clearly, that these are present, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? And of course, others are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, and so forth. The point is this, there is a subtle temptation that creeps into church members to Christians that instead of prioritizing the revelation of God's Word, there is the favoring of one of God's messengers. Now, of course, Paul had no issue with someone being benefited by Apollos or Cephas and never being benefited by him by his personal ministry. But his point is, when these party divisions splinter and fracture the fellowship of the church, there is a corruption of wisdom. And so you can think of it this way. You know, theological students are regularly told you ought to read the more orthodox ones with great care because it's they who will often slip something past you. And so you know, I mean, your antenna's up, your eyes are wide open when you're reading something by Jacob Arminius or by the Jehovah's Witnesses or by the Mormons. I mean, you're looking for the problems. Now, we aren't to be heretic hunters as they're called, But what's being said is, when you're reading someone who's more trusted, you ought to be sure that you're reading still with discernment to discern the Word of God and not just take it at face value to say, well, here's a trusted person. I'm just going to take it, everything they say. There is the commending of the Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's the approach. That's the posture. That's the commitment to biblical wisdom. They understand that the only pure fountain, the only untainted fountain, the only perfect fountain is God's Word. Whereas this minister may be largely faithful, yet he still has his imperfections. And so I don't want to put that person, as we say, on the pedestal and say, well, if he said it, I believe it. If he said it, in spite of the fact that there are grave questions about what's been said, I'm going to embrace it still. In other words, even within Christian circles, we need to be sure 
that we aren't judging based on preferences for persons over faithfulness to God's Word. This isn't to deny the fact that there are those who are in God's economy and providence proven helpful guides, but it is to assert the fact that our allegiance to the truth is not because of them. We're grateful where they've helped us understand the truth, but our allegiance to the truth is because of God, and so we would hold fast to His Word. Well, we could multiply instances, but we trust that these basic temptations against faithfulness unto God's Word is quite clear. So, secondly, to the standards for faithfulness. What is it that faithfulness uh, lays hold of and is faithful to? Well, first and foremost, it is allegiant to, it is faithful to God. Now, that is needing to be clarified, of course, but it's important for us to assert in such simple ways. The standard to which biblical wisdom is faithful is God. Now, we understand God is communicated to us. Where is He communicated? It's in His Word. And so, wisdom is ever seeking this as its question, what has God stated on this fact? What has God set before us with reference to this case? Or what circumstances or whatever else? What can I discern from God and His Word that would inform me to know how I should live, how I should counsel, how I should carry myself in this world? Wisdom is ever seeking God's viewpoint, which of course then means that wisdom is ever seeking to submit to the Word of God. So you can think of it this way, of course. You know, we can say, a child can say, well, I'm faithful to my dad. I'm faithful to my mom. And perhaps we could understand what that is. But that wouldn't be genuine if you heard the mom or dad say, okay, son, what I want you to do today is I want you to take this to school and I want you to give it to the teacher or whatever else, you know, something that the parent might say. And then the child comes home, hasn't done it, and says, well, but I'm still faithful to you. Well, it may be that largely that's the case, but they were not in this particular instance. Faithfulness is faithfulness to what has been spoken, what has been said, what has been revealed. We can't contend to be faithful to God when we take His Word and set it aside or ignore it or are largely ignorant of what He said and still have this feeling of faithfulness. If we're to be faithful to God, we must be faithful to His Word. So the Scriptures are inspired of God. They're breathed out by God. They're spoken by God. If you and I are to be wise people, truly wise, heavenly wise, divinely wise, as the Scriptures are emphasizing, we must be familiar with what God has said. So you think of in the Lord's providence, we've just completed the book of Ezra. Ezra came to a tremendously complicated, difficult situation. And what perhaps we don't realize so clearly is his life's devotion to being a scribe in the law of God well-trained gave him, by God's grace, the foundation to address this very complicated, weighty scenario. It didn't, it's not just like Ezra just sort of came in and said, well, this is what I think we should do. Boom, boom, boom. Let's carry on. His devotion for his life was the searching of God's Word. And you can see, in some sense, the great temptation that was gripping himself unto paralysis and spiritual frustration. And yet, by the encouragement of one whom God had appointed, he's able to stand and guide the people of God in the course of wisdom. The instrument to that end was God's Word. Now, brethren, we live in a day, I mean to say it simply, which is far more compromised and complicated than Ezra's. And if Ezra had such a difficulty sort of working through that at the outset, and he was one most studious in God's Word, how can we ever think to address all of the improprieties, 
all of the issues, the circumstances and such, without a diligent searching of God's Word. And so you can start to see something. Satan is a master in his cunning ways to stranglehold or to stumble God's people. And so as he distances them from God's Word, and as the culture continues to embrace all sorts of wickedness, the church becomes less able to walk wisely. And so there are all sorts of arguments now as to why we don't need to devote ourselves to God's Word with a sacrificial and studious attempt to discern what God is saying. And so sermons are shortened to 15 minutes. Bible reading is brought down to three or four or five verses. And the Bible itself is minimized while what's maximized is all of our contributions, what we do, our display, all of these things. And what's happening is the church of Christ Jesus in this world is becoming increasingly ignorant and thus unable to address the complicated issues of our day. And so you see things that happen then in our context, right? You have the whole issue of Black Lives Matter that flared up in all of its uh, uh, complicating facets. And what happens is ignorantly, All sorts of things start to be said by Christians. But there's not a deep thinking through what are the issues at hand? What's being said here? The politics of our day. And so we're going to support Republicans. Why? Because Democrats are murderers of babies. Well, they are. We've got a fair bit in the Republicans that are. And we have idolaters in the Republicans. We have people who are supportive of all sorts of wickedness. And all of the politics aside, here's the point. Instead of thinking through principles of truth, righteousness, godliness, God's Word, there is the capitulating to the talking points at hand. And the church is in an anemic position to address this flood of iniquity that's before us. Fundamental to all of that is that the church has no longer prioritized the emphasis of God's Word. It's in lip service. People will say this. But it takes one worship service to see where the true priority is. It takes one week's worth of assessment. How is the church addressing things? How is the individual prioritizing God's Word? You see, all of those subtle pushes in our lives to put out God's Word in our life is actually having a massive impact, not just individually, but upon the church visible in our day. To be faithful in wisdom demands that we are saturated and stabilized and founded upon the Word of God. Because if we're to be wise in these compromised and dark days, we have to know what God has said and how God's Word is to be applied to the situations at hand. So think of it this way. It is a struggle for the average American to read. Think of that for a moment. I don't mean to read words. I don't mean to understand what this word says or that word says. But as far as deep meditative reading, that's hard for the average American. We aren't saying this to shame people. We aren't saying this to say, you know, so this culture is worse than that culture. What we're saying is this is a symptom that is indicative of the problem. Because God has revealed Himself by the Word. He didn't reveal Himself through music. He didn't reveal Himself through videos. He revealed Himself through His Word. And our minds are so made as to work through thought, diligent, difficult thought. And what's happened socially and culturally is there's been a big push to what? Entertainment, passive information. We sit down. Oh, I want to know what's going on. We sit down. We put on the television, put on, search the YouTube, you know, the internet, and we get videos and we sit back passively. And then we say things like this. I've done a lot of research. Can you imagine? Like people say, I've done research. And all that they mean is that they've watched a few videos. They've seen this person talking. They've listened to a podcast. 
But there's been actually no deep thought on the matter. No weighing of these things. And least of all, has there been any weighing of the whole counsel of God's Word. If we are to be faithful in discerning what the circumstances are and how to navigate those circumstances, we must be men and women who are informed by God's truth. That doesn't come passively and it doesn't come accidentally. It comes by a deliberate commitment to meditating upon the Word of God. Otherwise, we don't know the standard of righteousness. We don't know the standard of God's truth. We have to meditate upon these things in order to be guided by them. The other thing is that we have to know the standard of love. This is an emphasis in this portion of James. These aren't contrary and they're not to be separated. It's not as if we're to say, well, the standard of truth, well, and by the way, this other standard of love. They're united. But the point is there's a, a discerning of these things, a distinguishing of these things. The standard of love can be seen, for instance, when Christ says you know, that we're to do unto others as we would have them do, uh, do unto us. So you can see this stated, for instance, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, and at verse 31, when... Uh, other gospel writers have it in other places, but you have Christ saying, and as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Now this is in a context, of course, about the way that we're to carry ourselves toward others, but this is the point. Wisdom isn't about intellect as much as it is life, living, how we carry ourselves, how we speak, what we do. Now, the reason we emphasize truth first is because the world today perverts what loving others is and what loving ourselves is as well. And so, you know, today there's all the question about what love is. And of course, in our own country, there's the whole issue about homosexual marriage that's flaring up right now. And you hear all of the nonsense about, you know, people should just be able to love whoever they want to love. Well, the problem is embedded in that word love is an entirely new definition and a definition contrary to the Bible's definition. So when Christ says, as He does, you know, if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And before that, as ye would do, as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. This isn't putting the foundation for the nonsense we have today. It's in the context, rather, of an understanding of God's law, God's truth, and then that we are to carry toward one another as we would want them to carry toward us. So, for instance, we wouldn't want to be mistreated based on the color of our skin. We wouldn't want to be taken advantage of because we're in this sort of you know, position socially versus that position socially. We wouldn't want to be uh, set aside and our case not heard because you know, we're only 20 years old instead of being 40 years old, we would want justice to prevail. That's what Christ is getting at. That we are to love them. That we're to be guided toward them, not out of a preference to ourselves, but out of a preference to the standards of love. Now, where is love defined? Of course, Paul says as much in Roman or in 1 Corinthians 13, but it's actually crystallized in the law of God. So Paul says this in Romans 13, O no man anything but that you love one another, for love is the fulfilling of the law. And he doesn't mean by that, don't worry about the commandments of God, just go about with this feeling of warmth in your heart and be kind to everybody. He says, listen, you're to not kill, you're to not steal, you're to do these things and so on. Why? Because when we love one another, we're not going to steal from them. When we love one another, we're not going to lie to them. When we love one another, we're not going to you know, commit adultery with their spouse. When we love one another, we're not going to covet the things they have. We're going to be grateful for the things they have. The point is this. The standard of love is not an abstracted standard of a feeling. 
It's the inscripturated standard of God's law. So when it is we're thinking about wisdom, we're thinking, yes, about our neighbor and how it is we would want to be treated and so on, but we're thinking about God's law. What does God's law say about how I should treat What does God's law say about how I should behave toward her or behave toward him or what counsel I should give to this one? Because it would be far easier for me to give counsel that sort of compromises a little bit, dances around a bit of a difficult situation, ignores that thing, than to say, listen, God's law says X. That's what you need to do. The minister in our denomination uses the expression as is found, of course, in various places that many times we have to choose to grasp the nettles. The idea is to root up the difficult thing. There's the nettles that sting that we have to grab. And sometimes, perhaps we should say many times, wisdom demands that out of love to God and love to others, that we're committed to the hard thing. Now, brethren, some of this could be said, well, this is all difficult. Well, that's true. In fact, it's more than difficult, it's impossible in your own strength. The only way that this wisdom should ever be realized in your life is, as James says, this wisdom is from above, that God gives it. You see, our nation doesn't need a new politician that's going to make America great again. Doesn't need an old politician that's going to make America great again. Our country doesn't need a politician, that politician, this crew, that crew. The church doesn't need this super awesome charismatic leader. What we need are God-fearing leaders who are committed to God's truth, God's wisdom, and will rather choose what is true over what is beneficial and easy. But let's be straighter than that. What your families need is that. What your spouse needs is that. What the church needs is that. We need, as God would have us, graciously wise men, women, and young people who love the truth and sell it not. Who hold to the truth and say, whatever the cost to me, whatever the cost to you know, what the world thinks, whatever the cost to my family, whatever the cost to my marriage, whatever I'm not going to get in this life, yet I see that wisdom says, hold fast to the truth. If I hold fast to that, I am assured that God is honored. And this is my great desire, that God be honored. But brethren, we should see further than this. You know, men take a bribery or they do certain things and they corrupt wisdom so as to hear someone else say or to do to them something good. There's a day coming when those who are wise by God's grace will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord Jesus Christ will say to those who lived by His grace wisely, well done, good and faithful servant. Think of that for a moment. This is a small gathering. But one day, all of us will be gathered. This is an astounding truth. All of us will be gathered before all of the world. And the King of Glory will be standing. And you'll be ushered to the front of the whole world. And as a believer in Christ Jesus, who, as James has said, has faith that leads to faithful works, Christ will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And so that commitment, that tenacious hold to wisdom, buying truth, selling it not, not compromising God's standard, walking according to the principle of true love, all of those things, however ridiculed by the world, however marginalized, however abused, however difficult it was in this life, think of it for a moment. Will there even enter the thought in heaven I guess it was worth it. Brethren, when we get to heaven by God's grace, we'll see the glory of God manifested and the beauty of holiness in its perfection. And we'll know the riches of Christ's love. And if there's any such a thought about comparing heaven and earth, it will not be anything of, I guess it was worth it, 
But why was I willing to compromise anything at all? Heaven explodes what my thoughts were of what was to come. The world loves to say, look at all that you're sacrificing to walk wisely, to be faithful. And yet Christ is everywhere saying, look what you gain. Look what is waiting for you. Yes, the world despises. Friends say to you, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. Why would you be faithful in those things? Look how many in the church are doing differently. Christ says, look at my word. For one day all men will bow the knee and say, you are the Lord. And one day all who have trusted me and followed me will hear me say, well done. Brethren, there are many difficulties. We don't wish to underestimate those. But all of those must be put against this fact. That the one who is without partiality and in doing so may lose friends, may lose influence, may lose benefits, may lose jobs, may lose much. Yet what that person gains is first and foremost a life honoring God, which is to be meditated on as a tremendous privilege. And secondly, the honor of God. We don't mean that God sort of bows down and says, look at this spectacle. But God is the one who tells us that He will openly vindicate those who have followed Him. Our lives are difficult to judge because we live for 10 years, 20 years, and 30 and 40 years, and we feel like all this lifetime of pressure. But we have to learn to say 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 1,000 years. If you live to be as old as the oldest man in the Bible, what is that life? Yea, were it only consumed with pain and agony compared to eternity that engulfs a century, a millennium, in a moment. Brethren, this life of wisdom, though it demands much by way of self-denial and diligence, is a life to be measured not by what is lost in this world, but what is gained to God's glory, and likewise what blessings await those who follow Christ. Seeing so, brethren, we ought to pray that God would give unto us this wisdom, That we would say, whatever else others are doing, whatever else others are saying, yet I will walk by God's grace in the course of righteousness as He would give me wisdom. Brethren, as we do, think of it, Christ came preaching the kingdom of righteousness. As we walk in wisdom by God's grace through Christ Jesus, we walk as faithful subjects to His kingdom. May God bless us to do so. Would you stand with me for prayer?